I like that little transition intro thing there. That's like flashing behind me like this. That's pretty cool. Um, <clears throat> hi, everyone. My name's Tony uh, Baker. If you're online, I am the lead pastor on Gateway. Uh, if you're here, I'm still Tony Baker, the lead pastor at Gateway. Uh, today, we're continuing a six-week series that we started last week called, um, <clears throat> it's called Unstoppable, the Kingdom of God in, through the book of Acts. So this will be week two. Um, for us, you know, when times are uncertain, when times are unsure, when times are insecure, and when fear seems to be in everyone's mind and hearts, and fear is very real for us, there's a lot of things to be afraid of today. It's good for us to look back through a time in the church history when God's people, of which we are, and of which we're part of that story, His story, we're part of it. It's good to look back and see how God was the unstoppable God. That even in the midst of insecurity and uncertainty and fear and, and uh, you know, just an uncertain time in the lives of his people, God moved his church forward. And it continues to grow even to this day. So last week, I shared with you some uh, ideas out of uh, the first chapter of Acts on how Jesus told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem. So Jesus had died He was raised from the dead. His disciples were like, yay, he's raised from the dead. And so for 40 days, well, not all of them. Some of them were like, I don't believe it. That'll never, how can that be? And then he appears before them. You remember the story, Thomas, and up in the upper room, that story. But Jesus appears to them for 40 days and basically begins to tell them, you know, this is what's going to happen. It's very important that you understand this. You need to wait. One of the last things he told his disciples. You need to go to Jerusalem, go into that upper room, and wait. Don't go out in the streets. They're going to try to kill you. Don't go home. Don't go back to fishing, Peter. Don't go back to your tax collecting, Matthew. He said, just go back and wait. And God's going to give you a gift. Can you imagine what was going through their minds? They're excited. Jesus is alive and now he's here. And he's like, well, I'm going to leave you again. And they felt like maybe things weren't going to be so well for them. But Jesus made a promise to go back and wait. And this gift, he said, It's going to propel you into Jerusalem, Judea, and into all the world. Wow, that sounds like a pretty powerful gift. Yes, it's going to give you power. Oh, cool, we like power, right? Well, it's going to be a gift of power to be a witness. People are going to look at you and come to God simply because of what's in you. So now I have a confession of my own. The Great Commission, 
which Jesus is talking about. This plan, and you can see it all through Scripture, this plan of Jesus's to go into all the world and for us to be witnesses and for people to come to him and be baptized. You remember the Great Commission? Jesus says, go into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to be disciples. My confession to you today is this, is that the world is getting difficult for that to happen, in my opinion. My confession is that when I look at the Great Commission and I see what's going on in our world and how people are having a mass exodus of our churches, because, you know, we thought the church was, you know, let's just build it and they'll come, right? Well, guess what, folks? They ain't coming anymore. It seems impossible today. It seems to be getting harder You know, America is on this unstoppable movement that the church can't seem to turn around. We are moving from a Christian nation, which I don't think we've ever been a Christian nation, but we were founded upon Christian principles and values. But we're moving from what is a Christian nation to what now they call a post-Christian nation. You all see it. You all know this. You may not call it those things, but you see it happening around you. You see less and less people wanting to go to church. You see less and less people believing in God. You see less and less, you're like, what's going on? You know, for 400 years, Christianity influenced America. And not everyone chose to practice Christianity, but here's one thing I know. Almost everyone respected the Bible. They respected church. They even would be like, I'm not going to church because I'm afraid the roof will fall down on me. That's how much they respected it. (laughs) In my lifetime, and I'm not that old. Thank you. Love you, brother. I remember not being able to even go to a grocery store on Sunday. Now, before you jump on that, amen, brother, I'm not saying we should close things down on Sunday because I think we got it wrong there too. Sabbath is more than just not going to the grocery store on Sunday. Sometimes you need a carton of eggs, right? Sometimes you got an ox in the ditch and you need some milk for the baby. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying the, the, the country we live in, the world we live in, is slowly moving from... Christian to post-Christian in their thought process and their mindset. But it goes deeper than just grocery stores and restaurants. What does post-Christian mean? Let me boil this down for you. It means I can no longer look at my unsaved friends and say, you need to come to Jesus because the Bible says so. You can try it. But here's what you're going to hear. Why do I need to believe the Bible? I mean, it's a good book. It's got some good teaching in it. It's got some good stuff in it. Maybe some things I might even base my life off of. But the Word of God? What what makes it the Word of God? This is what they think. If you're not tapping into this, how many of you know people like this? Yes. Every one of us. 
that our world is changing. People are moving away from just taking it because I say it's the Word of God. They're like, well, I don't know. There's a lot of older texts than the Bible. The Bible's not the oldest book in the world. Y'all know that. It's kind of like this. Remember when your kids were three and four and five? Do you remember when that kid right there was three, four, and five? I am really sorry for you. And they would ask you, why? And you just said, because I said so. Okay. Most kids at three look to their parents and they just trust. Because I said so works. But what happens when they turn 12 and 13? And 14. And they say, why? And you say, because I said so. And then they say back to you, but why? This is what's happening in our world today. It's easy to become a lazy parent and just say, because I said so. You just have to do it because I said so. You just have to believe it because I said so. And that's kind of lazy because we don't want to get into the why. Because maybe we can't explain the why. There's just a fear in us. There's something in us that we just say, because I said so. It's also easy to become a lazy disciple. And that we just fall back on, well, it's the word of God. You either get on board or not. And we can't explain it. We can't talk about it. We can't talk about why Jesus teaches this idea of loving one another we can't explain in our own discipleship why people he's like maybe and this is where we're going i feel that the great commission is suffering not because the message is weak but because we're not listening and able to answer the questions our culture's asking they want to know that it changes your life They want to know that there is hope in those words. They want to know that there is change and transformation in those words. They want to know that if I give God everything, that I can trust Him. And they don't want you just to say, yes, you can trust Him. They want to see it in our lives. It's hard. Because I think we've become lazy disciples. And we're no longer disciples who make disciples, but now we're just simply fans of Jesus who come to church and want the church to just do it for them. And we weren't meant to be that. Discipleship was not ever meant to be a profession that someone else does for you. It has to be something that you have so deep in your heart that you just you follow Jesus to your friends who are far from him. And you love them. It's hard. But guess what? It was hard for the first disciples. 
They didn't have a friendly government. They didn't have freedom of worship. They didn't have a bill of rights. They didn't have a constitution. As a matter of fact, the Roman government was out looking for them to arrest them and kill them. The, Roman, or the, the Jewish leaders were out to arrest them and have them thrown in prison. They were scared. They were undereducated. They were ordinary people. They were powerless people who couldn't really change. And here Jesus comes along and says, look, I'm going to send you into the whole world to be a witness for me. And guess what? Someday, 2,000 years from now, this will be the largest following, religious following in the world. Could you imagine their minds at that moment going, there's no way. I might be able to force my kid to come and be a part of this, but the whole world? I mean, who were they to confront the Roman government? Who were they to be, confront the religious leaders? Who were they to confront the people of Jerusalem who were had it out for them? I mean, they must have felt inadequate and powerless to change anything. As I said, they didn't have this Christian nation, a friendly government to let them put nativity scenes on their squares or hang Christian flags in their buildings or put crosses up in their cemeteries. They didn't have a friendly government that let them have prayer in school and pass laws that were friendly to their faith. They didn't have all that. But somehow, American church, I feel as though we have gotten to the place where we feel if we don't fight for that, we can't be disciples. It's not true. Because God is an unstoppable God. The mission of God is unstoppable. The Spirit of God propels us into all parts of life, all governments, all rules and regulations and all fear he propels us into that and he gives us the power to overcome all of it i have some friends who are on the other part side of the world and they're laughing at us right now not laughing in a bad way but they're just like shaking their heads they're like wow the american church is like all up in arms you know because the Democrats are going to take this away and the Republicans are doing this and they're evil and that's evil and they're all fighting one another and they're like, wow, you have unrest in your church. And they're thinking, we live with that every day. In China, they have to go underground and hide or be thrown in prison. I'm whipping us a little bit today, church. Let's grow up. Let's grow up in faith and in grace and mercy and truth and know that no matter what happens to us, the Holy Spirit fills with power to be a witness. Wherever you are and wherever you do, whatever church you belong to, whatever place you go, the Holy Spirit propels us into our culture, whatever that culture might be. And the culture changes not from picket lines, but the culture changes when the people are changed. They didn't have this. Jesus, I mean, all the people knew 
about Jesus. So you want us to go out and talk about Jesus? All the people in Jerusalem knew about Jesus was this was some guy that was just about 40 days ago crucified and as a criminal of the Roman government. And all the people of Jerusalem cried out, crucify him. I mean, that's what you want us to go talk about? They didn't have a Bible like we do. They had the Old Testament scriptures, I guess, but all they had were the stories about Jesus that the apostles could tell. And yet, they were empowered with the Holy Spirit to go and make disciples. You're going to find out in a moment, on the first day, (laughs) on the first day that the Holy Spirit unleashed His power in His believers, 3,000 people came to believe in Jesus. In one day. That's power. Can you hear their conversation, these disciples in that upper room? Can you hear their prayers? Jesus, you left us. You told us to wait. We're hiding in this upper room. We're scared for our lives. People are on the streets. The, the, the town's being overrun with people from all over the world right now because it was Pentecost. It was a celebration. And people were coming from all over the world who were Jewish people to Jerusalem. And they're hiding in this upper room. And you told us that we would have power to be witnesses and we're scared to death. We have no political power. We have no military power. We have no religious power. We have no influence. All we have is this promise you made. Can you hear their prayers right now? What can we do, Jesus? How can we be this witness? What can we do? Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Three very important events in the life of Jesus and the story of Jesus. Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost. Christmas, you ready? You can write this down. This is good stuff. Christmas is Jesus is God with us. Easter is God for us. But Pentecost is God in us. Think about that. Very important events in the Jesus story and the revelation of God to us. God with us. God for us, and now God in us. Pentecost is that event when God fills His people with His Holy Spirit. God does His best work. Listen, not in our governments, not in our communities. God does His best work in us so that He can then work through us. And that is what Pentecost is about. Look at this. God does this best work, but look what it says. When they were together. Not a COVID-friendly kind of thing. Together. You know, we don't want to be too close together, brother. I know you're coming over for lunch later, but it's not, you know, I'm going to put you at the opposite end of the table, all right? We don't want to be too together right now, right? But we can still be together. I love what they say there. 
Basically, we are better together. They were together in one place. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. Verse 2. So they're in this upper room. Suddenly, a sound. They're together. They're praying. They're worshiping. They're just talking. They're, they're probably, I, I can hear Peter. Boy, I hope this happens soon because it's hot up here, right? And so I can hear Peter up there, right? Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. Wind. First symbol of the Holy Spirit. Remember that. Wind. Came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Wind is this first symbol of the Holy Spirit. Wind in the scripture almost always, and when you interpret the original language, it's the same word that you use for spirit, is wind. They understood this idea that you can't see the wind. Jesus even talked to Nicodemus about this. He said, he says, talking about being born again, he says, you know, you don't know where the wind comes from, but you know it's there. And this was their idea of the Spirit of God. They didn't know where he came from. They didn't understand him. They didn't, you know, they couldn't see him, but they felt him. They knew he was there. And so this first symbol of the Holy Spirit is this idea of breath. Can you all think of something where God breathed in and life came about? Give me one. Adam. Who said that? Very good. Adam. God breathed his spirit and life came into something else. It has to do with bones. Ezekiel. Ezekiel and the, the dry bones. They were dry, right? But all the flesh came on them and, and all the skin came on them and they were, they were put together again as human bodies. But it says... They didn't live until God breathed into them. There is life in the breath of God. He revives and renews and gives us life. And this new community, this new group of people were being breathed on and into them again. Once again, the spirit of the living God. Verse 3. So they saw this wind. Then they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. Second symbol of the Holy Spirit. Wind and fire. Right? Sounds like a group that sang in the 70s, I think. Something like that. But they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one. The second symbol of the Holy Spirit is fire. The wind may have confused them. And they didn't fully understand why this violent wind, but the fire was a symbol that God uses to convince them that this is God. This is God acting in a miraculous way. Do you remember another time in the Bible where God had to use fire to convince somebody? A bush. A burning bush. Fire. The bush never was consumed. God used the symbol of fire as evidence that he is doing something new and great in their midst. Or the smoking fire pot, what was the seal of the covenant with Abraham. God used fire 
in the Old Testament and in the Pentecost. Fire represents God's separateness. His set-apartness. It represents His holiness. His purity. Fire purifies. And when God broke off in tongues of fire and rested on each one, it was a symbol to them that God was about to do something miraculous in setting each person apart for His work that He was calling them to. They were together in one place, but God rested on each person. Listen, we're better together, but God still calls each person to live out their giftedness and their calling, to give of their time, talents, and treasure, to give of themselves, to, to give their whole being to the work that God has called the community of faith to be a part of. God sets each person apart. We are better together, but each of us has a part. Verse 4. All of them were filled with the Spirit. What an event. What a moment. The first time that something like this had really happened in the life of God's people. It was the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to his people that I will write my law upon your heart. You will no longer have to strive to know me. You will know me because I will be in you. And I will be your counselor and your comforter and your your God and your friend. I will be your helper because I'm in you. God, it says He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. God is now in His people. The promise of chapter 1 has come to, to pass. It's happened. I want to just make a note here. This is a teaching moment on tongues. I believe, unfortunately, this has been misinterpreted and misused in our different denominations and things like that. I always make a side note about this and what I believe this to be. We use the word tongues, but in the original language, it simply is languages. They were began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. And some have taken that to mean that the evidence of the Holy Spirit is that you will speak in tongues. And that's not true. That is not the evidence of the Holy Spirit. The evidence of the Holy Spirit is the purification of your heart and love for your neighbor. That's the evidence of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, it is a gift, right? He gives it. And I said, yeah, God gave this gift. But here's the thing. I want you to see this. You've got to read verses 5 through 12 to understand what's happening here. And this is very important to the meaning of the whole text. Watch this. Verse 5. Now, 
There were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under the sun, and they all spoke the same language. Doesn't say that, does it? No. If they were from every nation under the sun, would you imagine if every nation under the sun came in here? It'd be chaos, wouldn't it? Nobody would know what each person was saying. People would be talking to me. It'd be like, I'd be like, I don't understand you. I can't, you know, I can barely understand a few Hispanic, you know, Spanish words. You know, I just, I can't understand you. In, Ju- in Jerusalem at this time of the Pentecost were many, many God-fearing Jews from every part of the nation. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. That's important. Next verse. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of these men speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, you know, residents of Mesopotamia, Judah, and uh, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. Next, uh, Phrygia, and who wants to read all these things, right? Let's just say they were from a lot of different places than Egypt, than than, uh, Israel. Egypt, oh, I know that one. Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, Arabs. And they said, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own languages. This is amazing. And what some of us do is we focus in on that and they, they focus in on the gift. And they've turned it into this evidence of the Holy Spirit. And that is not the evidence. Listen, this is important. Sometimes we get so focused on the gift that we miss the point of it. We miss the purpose of it. The point is this. Not that God will enable us to do miraculous things. That's not the point. The point is God wishes to communicate His amazing truths and wonders to all peoples. That's the point. Don't miss that. If you miss that, you'll miss the mission of God. God's mission is to move the gospel to all men and women Boys and girls and children. And here's the bigger point. Are you ready? Our unstoppable God. I think we got a next one. Our unstoppable God will do the impossible when we are together and in all in on the mission. When God says God will move whatever mountain you want to move, it's not simply to make my life wonderful and comfortable God will move mountains for you when you want to share and be on mission with Him and share the gospel. Do you get that? Do you understand that? Don't ever forget, don't ever lose sight of the point that God's mission are those who are far from Him. Not me. What does God want from me? He wants me to give Him my life, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and get on mission with Him. That's what God wants. That's what he wants for you. And I know we say, well, God's going to move every mountain. Well, he doesn't always move every mountain, does he? But I know this from Scripture, that when it comes to a mountain or a hurdle or something impossible that's keeping the gospel from being spread, 
he will move that mountain. He will do that. And that's what he did in Acts chapter 2. What can we do? Nothing without the Holy Spirit. God will overcome all fear, all obstacles, unmovable mountains. He will do the impossible. When our, excuse me, when our hearts are on mission with God, when we, when we want to see those far from God come home to God, and when we are passionate about making disciples, God will move every mountain. He'll overcome every obstacle. And he may even bless us if we go somewhere and need to share the gospel for them to hear in their own language what needs to be heard. He'll do the impossible. So how does this play out, Pastor Tony? I mean, how does this play out? I mean, you know, I mean, this was a supernatural event that happened in history. Pentecost, there will never be another Pentecost. I know we say, well, you need your personal Pentecost. Well, Pentecost was a one-time thing. Listen to me. Follow me. This was the birth of the church. But that doesn't mean God isn't still filling his believers. This is an event, Pastor Tony. I mean, this is a moment in time, right? What happens tomorrow and the next day? I mean, this event happens the spirit fills his people and miracles happen peter stands up on a street corner this comes next we're not going to get into peter's sermon but this is the next thing that happens peter stands up on a street corner he proclaims the truths of god three thousand people come in to the church that day now what i mean i got to go to work tomorrow right i got school tomorrow i got you know i got to watch the kids tomorrow i'm going on vacation tomorrow now what How does this play out in our lives? Look at the end of chapter 2. This is the disciples who have been filled with God's Spirit. They were in the upper room. They received power to be a witness. 3,000 people came into the church in one day. And look, watch this. They, those who were in the upper room and were filled with the Spirit, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the, at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Next verse. As the believers were together, and they had everything in common. Are you starting to see something here? This sounds like a community, doesn't it? This sounds like someone who's really close. This sounds like somebody who's doing life together. This sounds like somebody who's on mission together. This sounds like somebody who's really connected with others who think like them and maybe are different from them, but they've been brought together under the headship of Christ. It says they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Next verse. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord, listen, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Four real quick things that I want you to see. God creates in Pentecost a new community. One that's different. 
one that works, one that isn't broken to the point that you just got to go your separate ways. God creates a community, a different community. He creates the church. They took on the characteristics of kingdom life. They loved one another. They were devoted to one another. The Holy Spirit put in them this desire for two really big things, to know God and to know one another. And through that community, God began to do his miraculous work around the world. Not individuals going out on their own and doing their own thing, but as a community, as a group of people who who grabbed hands and arms and they said, we are going to believe together and work together and be together. The Holy Spirit in them created this desire. Listen, first to know, I think I got a slide for you, to know Jesus, there it is. They were devoted to this. Tell us more about Jesus. Tell us about the time he calmed the storm. Disciples would come around, the apostles would teach. They didn't have Bibles. All they had was the Old Testament scriptures. They didn't know the New Testament. They didn't know Jesus. A lot of them didn't know Jesus that were coming in. They're like, tell us about him. Tell us the stories and everything that you see written down in the Gospels. They began to just verbalize. And as they met with the apostles, they would say, tell us about the time he calmed the storm or raised Lazarus from the dead. Tell us about that. How did that happen? What did he say? I mean, what kind of look on his face did he have, right? Can you hear? I I know I'm being, come on, you got to get into it, guys. If you're going to read the Bible, jump into it and just be fun with it. Have fun with it. Better yet, hey, Peter, Tell us how you betrayed him. Oh, I don't want to talk about it, Peter said. No. Peter says, yeah, I betrayed him. But you know what? He forgave me. And he embraced me. And he loved me. And he asked me to be an apostle and to feed his sheep. You, Peter, you betrayed him. Yeah, but Jesus loved me anyways. Tell us those stories. There were no Bibles like ours. They had no knowledge of, they had some knowledge of the bigger parts of the Hebrew text and how it intersected with the story of Jesus. But they just simply sat down and listened to the teachings of the apostles. And my gut tells me that they just filled their heads and minds with the stories of Jesus. This new community filled with the Holy Spirit, they wanted to know Jesus. And they wanted to know more about Jesus and how they could be a part of what God was doing in the world. The second thing that they were devoted to is the fellowship with each other. Koinonia. It's a word that comes that means communion or close relationship. True fellowship. Listen to me. True fellowship is not the fellowship hall coffee and cookie time. I like coffee and cookie time. It's good. And we should do that. But he, this word koinonia is true fellowship. It is doing life together. Even at personal sacrifice, they gave to one another. They helped one another. They prayed for one another. They lifted one another up. They met with one another. They were friends and they were on mission together. They gave their time, their possessions, and their money for each other. They gave their fellowship. 
you know, there's a couple ideas about, are you talking about a utopian concept? No, it's not utopian. It's more Old Testament. It was a practice in the Old Testament where they would sell things and they would apportion the proceeds whenever they needed, the need arose. And then recurrent and continuing practice of that. We're not calling for a utopian. We're not calling for you to go out and be hippies. Although some of you are like, I'd like to be a hippie, right? The point is this. They cared so deeply about one another and one another's well-being that they would do whatever it took to meet their needs. That's the kind of community we need to have. And that's the kind of community when you're filled with the Spirit that just happens. They gave sacrificially. They were sacrificially generous with each other. The third thing that you see is that they broke bread together. Three possible meanings. Maybe they ate the Lord's Supper, but I don't think it had completely formed like we have it now. There was a daily meal that they had, and they just simply shared it because in that day you got probably one meal a day. We didn't have three meals a day back then. I mean, when you had to work for your food, you had one meal a day, right? They remembered Jesus' death at that meal. There's a number of things that this could be. But here's the significance of this for me. Because in the Old Testament, in the first century Jewish family, um, there's a Hebrew word called mikdash miat. And that means little sanctuary. And here's what I want you to hear. The table for the first century Jew was the place of worship in the home. The dinner table was the place of worship in the home. When they broke bread together, when they shared dinner together, it was a guarantee of peace and trust and forgiveness in their fellowship. And then finally, they devoted themselves to prayer, praying as Jesus' community is us seeking God's heart together. Prayer keeps our hearts and minds focused on the who and the what and the why. Jesus is the center of our community, the heart and soul of our community. Jesus and his mission is our life's focus, and prayer keeps all of that in its proper order. Prayer helps us never lose sight of who is supreme in the community. So I want you to see how all of this is connected. Jesus dies. He's raised from the dead. He meets for 40 days with his followers. He teaches them all that he has left to teach them before he goes back to heaven. He gives them the great commission. I need you to go. I don't need you just to sit here and stare into the sky and wait for me to come back. I need you to go. I need you to go and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them all that I have commanded you. But how, Jesus? How are we going to do that? We're on the run. We're scared. We're ordinary people. We don't have political power. We have no influence. How are we going to do this? Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem and a gift will be given you. And this gift, the Holy Spirit, 
will give you power to be a witness. And so then Pentecost happens. A new community is formed. A different community is born into existence. One where they have power to be witnesses. But how? Does that mean I need to stand on a street corner and wear a sign and tell everybody they're going to hell if they don't get on board? Does that mean I need to give my life up and go to Africa? I mean, I guess if God's asking you to do that, you need to do that. How did this community move the church forward together in the power of the Spirit as they continually devoted themselves to God and to one another? God drew the people into the kingdom. So I want you to imagine with me, and I'm going to close. Our worship leaders can come. I I want you to imagine with me for just a moment if you had a small group of people in your life, I mean, first of all, doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound like something you want, that you desire, that, that you just have a group of people like that in your life? Doesn't that sound like something that's like, I want to be a part of that. I want to see my friends who are far from God and not have to feel like i got to go and do this whole discipleship thing and, hey, knock on their door if you were to die tonight and, you know, and all this stuff and scare them into the kingdom, right? That never works either. Would it be nice if you just had a group of friends who loved one another, like to have fun together, eat together, maybe do some, you know, come around the Bible and do some Bible study. And, and you had somebody that could come in and say, hey, I got a friend who's far from God. Can they join our group? I think it would happen. I'm hearing of it happening all over the place. Churches that are moving beyond just this. This is awesome. I, wanna, I wish this place was packed and on Sunday morning we worship God, but I don't want this to become your discipleship. This is a means of grace in which you grow in your faith. But your discipleship is caring for your friends and loved ones who are far from God. Growing in Christ and growing together. Going deeper with Christ and deeper together. That is discipleship. And through that, God will grow His church. Your friends who are far from God who may never step in here on a Sunday morning, but they'll come to your house for dinner. They will. They'll hang out with you at the park. They'll go on a bike ride or a run with you. They'll, they'll go down and, and, uh, and, and do something that they enjoy doing with you. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about being communities of faith. Smaller micro churches all over this community. I'm starting mine today. We've grabbed about four, four couples, four families from our church, and Tamara and I said, let's just start having dinner on Sunday after church. Let's invite people over and make them bring us dinner, you know. Because I'm tired. I don't want to cook. You know, my wife was up at 5 o'clock this morning cooking. I, I, I love my wife. You're going to enjoy this. But we're going to meet. We're going to have fun. We're going to go deeper together. We're going to talk about things and we're going to talk about what our group looks like and hopefully as it just takes a life of its own we're going to invite the holy spirit to fill us 
And guess what? I already have a couple that I know that's not here. I know them. And they won't come to church very often, but they'll come to our group. And through that, they'll grow. They'll learn about Jesus. And hopefully through that, they'll give their heart and life to Jesus. And then through that, they'll grow in Jesus. And then they'll break off and start a group. And then they'll invite all their non-Christian friends to come and be a part of that. And then they'll just start growing together and start doing Bible study together, start praying together, start doing life together. This is how it's happening, folks. If you're holding on to the old model, it ain't going to work. If we love our method, our models of church, more than we love God's mission, we'll die. We'll die. So I'm going to invite you as we sing, will you make room today in your heart? Will you make room in your heart and mind for the Holy Spirit to lead you, to guide you? Maybe God will prompt you, hey, there's three or four people that I'd love to just get together. We're only going to probably meet maybe, maybe weekly. Maybe we just might, you know, we're busy people. We may just meet twice a month. We can't meet less than, once a month's not going to get it for me. But twice a month, maybe. We don't know how much we're going to meet, but we're going to meet and we're going to grow and we're going to go deeper with each other. Maybe God's prompting you to start something. Maybe you really like camping and you want to start a camping group in the summer and you want to go out and get all your friends together and you can get everybody together and do that. That's crazy. But yeah, go ahead. Maybe you're a first responder and you know some first responders and you want to get a group of nurses together. I don't, whatever you have in common, that's the thing. That's the beautiful thing. Get it together, start it, and just start seeing what God wants to do through that. Will you make room today for God to move you? Make room. Lay some things down. Surrender your heart and life today. You can stay seated, but here's what I want you to do. If God's just really moving in your heart and life, just stand and worship God today as we sing this. As you're letting go, as you're giving God, as you are just saying, God, I'm making room for you to move me today, let him do that. Let's sing. Intro, two, three.